0: So here's an interesting game to talk about. What's funny is, despite the fact that I don't consider them some of the best games of the era, I've actually played a lot of Quintet games. Uh, Actraiser, Soul Blazer, um, Robotech, which was a bad game, but I played it all the way through to the end, so make of that what you will. Uh, What else? Terranigma, of course. Everyone knows about Terranigma. And this one, Illusion of Gaia. And, of course, there's the loose trilogy thing connecting uh, Soul Blazer, uh, Illusion of Gaia, and Terra And I'm not just talking about the name of the games thing. There's some thematic connection points between the three games, which make it kind of interesting to think about. But, unfortunately, I don't think there's any real strong connections of continuity there, so I'm not going to really mention that again. Once again, I find myself with very little to talk about from a behind-the-scenes perspective, although I do want to mention that this game has one of the worst English translations of this particular era. Now, I know this is the SNES era. I get that. And I understand, I, I've, I've given speeches on the ideas of uh, translation, of localization, and how FF9 was the first game to really get it right, and, and basically start a new era of things actually being translated well over here, although Earthbound was kind of an in-between exception to that one. So I get that that was just kind of the norm. But there's several sections where I probably would still not know what was actually going on if not for the fact that I decided to look into it, because I was interested. Now, the other thing I want to talk about about this game is anytime I mention Illusion of Gaia, people's reaction is usually, Yeah! Illusion of Gaia's awesome! And I can see why, but it's never really held that particular position for me Mostly because I think of I'm trying to think how to put this. I guess the overall presentation is the word I want to use. Uh, the graphics are fairly subpar, even by SNES standards. Um, the music is—I mean, there's some good songs in this game, but it is incredibly repetitive. They have hard, they have way too few songs for how long this game is. Well, I shouldn't say how long this, is. but for a game of, of this length and for the, the, the amount of variety of scenes that happen in it. And the gameplay, which I'll talk about in just a second, doesn't particularly wow me. It Again, I'll talk about that in a second. And, you're, and so now you're probably saying, why is it you could then understand why people say that? Well, because of the story. Illusion of Gaia did things that most games didn't do in this era. Nowadays, this would probably be seen as norm. But back in the day, back in the 90s, you didn't see games like this that came out and unashamedly, unabashedly uh, hit serious, dark, realistic issues and concepts and themes and didn't try to hide behind them. Granted, Terranigma is overall a much darker game than this one, but Illusion of Gaia is pretty dark. This is, there's a lot of messed up stuff going on. In fact, that's one of the central themes of the entire game, but I'll get to that later. So, I I like how <sighs> bold is the word I want to use. It, it, how bold, how unashamed, how willing the game was to to bend general concepts and to approach topics that most other games wouldn't. But but I said we talk about the gameplay, so let's talk about the gameplay. Normally, uh, I would call this an ARPG, an action RPG. But upon rethinking about it, it's really hard for me to actually qualify this game as an RPG. I don't mean that as a negative thing. It's just, I I know, and we've talked about this many times, especially on stream, you know, how do you define an RPG and the many, many different definitions people have for RPGs. But in my mind, this is a game that I just don't think I would qualify as one. There's no levels. You know, you don't level up. There's no um, real party mechanic or anything like that. There's no equipment, you know, there's no alternate leveling. In fact, there's no any form of progression, with the sole exception of story-based progression and stat-based progression. Now I know what you're thinking, well, that sounds like an RPG. Well, let me explain, though. Uh, this is a weird game in the, in the sense that uh, the ways to get stat-ups are to kill all of the enemies within a particular area. There's a little thing in the menu to tell you if you're in an area that will give you a stat-up. Uh, there's uh, some of the gem gifts you turn in to the Soul Blazer uh, boss can give you a stat-up. Uh, there's certain hidden actions and events you can do in some of the towns, and some of the bosses give you stat-ups, and that's it. So uh, for the most part, your stats just kind of naturally progress as you go through the game. There's no real leveling or progression of stats other than that simple increase. In addition to that, as I mentioned before, there's no inventory whatsoever. Uh, okay, that's a lie. There's no equipment whatsoever. And the inventory is pretty much universally for the, the healing herbs, of which there's only 12 in the entire game, by the way. There's no currency, there's no purchasing or anything like that. There's no repair mechanics, there's no anything like that. Um, and the inventory is seems kind of limited, especially since, you know, quest items and whatnot I'd go in there as well. However, you can send off gems whenever, so that little hurdle was bypassed, thank God and then there's the way that they do the power progression i actually kind of like this system if i'm being completely honest the, the power progression specifically i've used similar systems within my own uh, stories uh, as a dm for D or pnp or whatever where you, certain things have happened in the story and as a consequence of that, you now are stronger in some specific way, usually gaining more abilities. And that's exactly what this game does. Periodically, you go to talk to Gaia, and Gaia's like, Look, hey, hey, listen, I, I got something. Got something for you here, man. We're cool? And you're like, yeah, we're cool. And you gain the ability to turn into freedom, or you gain the ability to turn into shadow, and you, or you gain the dash, or you gain the, the spark shot, and... ...all those other things that you get from those. And that's how you progress power-wise, ability-wise. Although in most of those cases, those come across as things that help you... uh, ...solve puzzles or maneuver rather than flat-out combat abilities. Which brings me to my next point. For a game that is absolutely glutted with enemies... ...and I mean, there are so many monsters in this game, it's kind of ridiculous. It's funny how this game kind of de-emphasizes combat... Now, obviously, I'm a little bit biased here. Uh, I've seen speedrunners play this game. I've, uh, seen tasses of this game. And I have, uh, studied this game and the underlying mechanics of it several times. And of course, played it, uh, two and a half times. The half is when it first came out. I never finished it back in the day. Because it was a rental. But, anyone <laughs> remember those? But, uh, the. The game... I i don't want to say it's easy. That's not what I want to get across. What I want to say is that, for the most part, it's not like you really need those stat-ups. You don't need to have mega attack or whatever. You know, most bosses only have so much health. And even if you're only hitting them for one a smack with your flute, you will be able to kill them, especially if you know their patterns. <laughs> I also want to add that way more of the emphasis is on the, for lack of a better term, adventure mechanic. So, the dungeons... You'll, I'm not going to talk about this as I'm going through my notes here. Like, there's several sections where I mention something and then you go through two full dungeons and then i make another note after two dungeons of content because there was nothing to talk about during that section percentage wise the overwhelming majority of this game is set within the dungeon landscape the idea of here's the rooms there's the goal a to b and uh, it feels like a a like a, a zelda light almost this is a good time to talk about puzzles. I, I've been meaning to talk about this for a while now, and whenever I do finally do the Zelda lore run, I will probably bring it up there as well. But puzzles in a game are easy to define, like straight classic puzzles. You know, a Rubik's Cube, that's a puzzle. Um... You've got a gallon full of two gallon, you know, a a, a jug full of two gallons of water and a jug full of one gallon of water. How do you make this into a, a three gallon thing or whatever? You know, that's a puzzle. That's a classic, typical puzzle. It's something that's divorced from the situation, separate from what's going on, and it's basically just there to brain tease you. And there's usually a certain number of such puzzles that exist. The most classic and understood one, like ever, is here's two people. One of them always lies. And they will tell you which way to go. You know, that kind of a puzzle. That's a puzzle. This game, and what most games that I I feel really do puzzles well, implement is uh, something completely separate, which I usually refer to as a Zelda puzzle. Because Zelda does that all the damn time. Um, Most notably, really started with L-T-T-P. In Link to the Past, that's when they really started. And Ocarina, excuse me, Ocarina, uh, really continued that. And that's been a trope in the Zelda series ever since. Uh... In fact, as much as I've spoken negatively about Skyward Sword, I will say that Skyward Sword has some of the best Zelda puzzles I've ever seen. And it's hard to really define a Zelda puzzle, but generally a Zelda puzzle is something where you have to rejigger or remaneuver something within the environment, something that could be seen as being an aspect of the lore, or is built into the dungeon, or the terrain, or the boss, and once you figure that out, that opens up a path forward. It's a little harder to define, but I bet most of you would know what I mean just by the term Zelda puzzle. So, getting back to Illusion of Gaia, I believe that this game was trying for more of a Zelda puzzle approach, you know, okay, you kill these enemies, and then the little thing goes over, and then a path opens. Probably one of the most basic, and and one of the most Standout uh, examples of this I can think of right off the top of my head is in the diamond mines when you kill certain enemies and then literally a chunk of this this wooden fence that's in your way blows apart and now you can actually go forward right so it's not quite fully within the environment like a true Zelda puzzle and as I was replaying this I kind of forgot how very basic most of the puzzles are for the most part there's kill things to progress hit a switch to progress hit a distant switch to progress, or like the dash puzzles. And that's kind of it. I, it's funny, because I'm not really saying it as a negative thing, but again, it kind of contributes to why I just don't have that much to say about the dungeons. In fact, I am now done talking about the dungeons. Uh, what I do want to talk about is the overworld. This is one of the weirdest types of overworlds I've ever seen in a game. I'm not even 100% sure why it exists, other than the ability to go backtrack at certain points in the game. Which is a thing you only have at certain points in the game. Sometimes you are fully railroaded into progressing forward. And there are things you can permanently miss in this game. So for those of you who have not played this game, the overworld basically is you are at point A. You say, I want to go to point B. And then you go to point B. And that's it. There's no random encounters in the overworld. There's no exploration. There's no nothing. I've actually seen pictures of the overworld map. It's very small. And that brings me to my next point. Illusion of Gaia is a relatively short game. That's why I had to correct myself earlier. It's not a super short game. It still took me, I think, like three and a half hours to get through. Of course, I knew what I was doing. I've played this game before. But still, it's surprising how short it is, given how relatively dense the events are, and the story, as I mentioned before. But again, getting back to that dungeon... I'm sorry, i got one more thing to say about the dungeon design. If you know which enemies to kill in which areas and which switches to hit, you can just ignore, like, all of the enemies, especially if it's an area where it doesn't give you a stat-up, or if you don't care about stat-ups, which I didn't for this playthrough, so it was just, all right. Dash up here and go over here. Oh, got to kill these guys. I love the fact that your weapon's a flute, by the way. All right. I got a couple of questions before we really get into the story. We're at the story section now. This is your last chance to avoid spoilers if you ever want to play this game. So first of all, I don't have much to say about most of the specific char- characters other than Will and Kara themselves. Will is... He's kind of morose. It's rare to see a protagonist of a game, especially a Japanese RPG uh, like this. He's... I've already used the best word. He's morose. He is thoughtful. He considers his actions very carefully. He's actually quite normal, despite what he goes through and despite what happens. He's not some, I'm a kid from a village and I will grow up to be a great hero. No, he never really becomes that great hero. And I don't mean that as a negative thing. He stays the kid the whole time, but he does mature you can tell by the way he speaks, and, the, and we actually see his own thoughts at certain points in the games, that he has, for lack of a better term, grown up throughout the course of the game. It's also implied in the backstory and, and the way the game is presented that Will and Kara are two of the few, uh, let's call them real humans. In other words, humans who are unaffected by the comet, and thus what most people should be. The, the general gist of this being that people should be generally good people, and that is one of the undercurrent themes of the work. Um, I also have a quick question, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, because this isn't, like, solidified in anything. I, I did look into the original Japanese translation for quite a bit of this game to clarify some points, and they didn't actually clarify this one point. So what do you guys think? Is freedom and Shadow, are they separate from Will? Uh, to explain this a little bit better, do you think Will just kind of changes shape and it's still Will walking around in a different form, or do you think he effectively is su- supplanted by Freed or Shadow when that happens? Now, we do know Shadow was one of those uh, super biomega tech things that the Ancient Empire, which is probably from Soul Blazer, uh crafted alongside the Comet, so I'd personally lean more towards the idea that you're basically assuming a new form, but as you're walking around as the Knight, it is still Will basically walking around in a really weird equivalent of a mech suit, you know? That's my opinion on the matter. I also... uh, So, Kara is another interesting uh, character. Kara, of course, starts off almost painfully innocent. She she actually has my favorite quote of the game, too. I'll get to that later. But she has a nice quote early on as well, where she says, I too am imprisoned, uh, paraphrased, I too am imprisoned by a prison whose walls are gold and silk. And I kind of like that. And there's some really dark undercurrents there. I mean, when you first find her, one of the first things that happens is the king sends soldiers to basically pick her up and carry her back home, against her will, it's worth noting. Now, that by itself doesn't sound bad. I mean, if your your child runs away from home, you want to bring them back, right? But given the queen's usage of the jackal, given the king's general descent into mindless greed and rampant warmongering, well, this sounds a little bit more like... She's basically a property and an object of the dynasty that the king and queen want to maintain, and therefore she effectively has the, uh, Kara, effectively has no rights or uh, privileges, or is considered a sentient and sapient being, uh, at least by her parents, as a consequence stupid thing, as a consequence of, of how they perceive her. In other words, not just imprisoned by silk and gold, but by social constructs. (sighs) Yeah, Um, so I have a thought about this game, and it it didn't really occur to me until I was a decent ways into it. I'm going to share it now. Illusion of Gaia is a great game of moments. Now, I kind of already hinted at this, because it's like, you know, impacting scene, impacting events, and then dungeon, 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 and then impacting scene, impacting events, dungeon, dungeon, dungeon. dungeon. It follows that pattern for quite a while. So, <clears throat> one of, uh, the, part of the the consequences of this is the plot tends to meander a little bit. And I, I know meandering. <laughs> the like i've I've actually more than once going through this game, I found myself just thinking, why why is this happening now? Like, okay, they're on the ghost ship, but it it's actually set sail, but they're all dead, so that was all oh, that was all just psychic projections or whatever. But now we're being attacked by the Leviathan, which which ate him, but okay, now, huh, and now we're over here. oh, hang on, I passed out on the raft, but now we we made it back to town and and some of the events just kind of go like okay, we we fall from this guy. Uh, the Sky Garden. All right, we we're caught by the plane. Yes, way to go, Neil. Wait, we're crashing. Quick, eject. Okay, now we're in this palace under the sea. Let's go through. Moo. The, the sequence of events just feels kind of weird to me. A little disconnected. I've often wondered if that's part of, uh, partially because of the translation issues, that maybe the, this is smoothed out a little bit more, or if this is just set piece to set piece kind of writing. Because again game of moments. And I'm going to talk about those moments as we go down here, and then I'll finish up talking about uh, my thoughts on the ending and the major theme of the work. The themes, excuse me. So, first of all, uh, right early on, there's a scene where you are approached by the king, and the king says, Give me what I demand, or I will kill you horribly. He doesn't quite say it like that, but he's very obviously evil. Capital O, capital E. Tosses you in prison. Now, what you have to do is you have to wait now I know that sounds really mundane but again I want to remind you this is the SNES era of video gaming do you know how rare it is for a video game to force you to wait yes I know earthbound did it too but I'm serious think about that for a second at the time it was considered like a a, a disaster idea from a uh, from a game design perspective to force the player to just sit and wait for events to unfold was considered antithetical to the very concept of a video game, of interactive media. And maybe I'm just weird, but I remember when I first played this, The Rental, you know, back in, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you where, but back where I used to live at the time, and my friends Joel and Vincent, I was talking to him about this, and, and we all had the same general reaction of, oh my god, I can't believe the game made you just sit there and wait. Actually, it just occurred to me, FF6 did a similar thing, although to a much smaller extent, but to the same impact because it's done to force you to really feel the moment and i actually agree with its usage here in illusion of gaia if you'd gone to the prison and then immediately been like all right here's lily and she's going to get us out it would have felt lacking like all right and it would have had no impact it's just oh well he threw us in prison now we gotta get out in fact another game i'll be talking about uh previously or after this i can't remember because i'm doing these out of order relative to how they're coming out uh secret of mana had a similar instance where you get thrown in prison, And then you can go talk to the guard and immediately get out of prison. Just BAM! Immediately just... It it loses some of the impact as a consequence. Forcing the player to sit there. And it's not too long. It's like 40 seconds, I think, total. And there's some dialogue in the middle there as well. That just kind of makes the player, the actual person sitting at the controller, be like... and, and, And stop and take it in and be like, wow, they actually... Huh. And then to start to think about things, and probably get a little bit of resentment towards the king going, which is probably part of the intent as well. So, now we're going to skip forward a lot. Like I said, I don't have a lot of thoughts for everything, but I mentioned the gold ship section. Uh, We get to the gold ship, and we talk to all these people. They all speak in these uplifting tones about how great it's going to be to go undergo this this great voyage and this journey that they're really looking forward to. And then they all die! Uh, or more accurately, they all died, past tense, long before you got there. And then we lose our first, I hesitate to use the term party member, because again, there's no real party in this game, but we lose Seth. Seth is knocked over and gets eaten by the Leviathan, which gets weird later, but we'll get to that when we get there. And the whole thing gives an impression of people who wanted to accomplish more. People who wanted to reach out and, with great ambition or great hope, failed miserably. It's part of that theme thing. I'll get to that more later. So then we get to the raft section. I can say without hesitation that the raft section is my favorite part of this entire game. Um, Again, this is actually a decent ways in. Like I said, I'm skipping all the dungeons in between. Uh, You get to the raft section, and for a bit you're forced to just sit there. Oh my gosh, me. nothing to do. Nothing you can do. You're just sitting there. And you talk with Kara, and you have these discussions. And then it goes black, and then it comes up, and you're still on the raft. And then you talk some more, and it goes black, and and you're still on the raft. And then there's all these events that happen on the raft. There's like three or four separate events. So I want to talk about this uh, extensively. First of all, Kara has her first few steps of real character growth here. Uh, So does Will, actually. Um, one of the best examples here is Will is the kind of person who has a set of ideals that he adheres to. You don't see a lot of this. It's not, all the, it's not all throughout the work. But he clearly is the kind of person who doesn't want to compromise on his ideals. And Kara is the kind of person who is sufficiently innocent, naive, or both to the point where she doesn't really want to acknowledge reality. The, the, the scenario on the raft is the first time she is forced to to acknowledge reality. She has to kill those fish and eat them because they are starving and dying. Oh, another fun little point here. Uh, As the raft scenes progress, your health slowly just kind of goes down and down. Nice touch there, video game. Uh, Game and story integration moment. So they finally acquiesce to eating the fish, and and, and, and it's treated as this big deal. And I kind of like that. Remember, these are kids. Now, I know that doesn't mean much, because so many main characters in so many games and shows and books and movies are kids. But this game actually treats them as if they're kids. Uh, What is it, like 14, 15, I think? I, I can't remember off the top of my head, forgive me. And so, they are naturally squeamish about killing and eating fish. Especially since they don't have any proper way to cook them on this raft in the middle of nowhere. But on top of that, of course, they don't want to kill to survive. It's it's part of both of their mindsets. They only do so when they are literally dying. And this comes up again when the sharks start circling them. This is actually a nice little bit, too. The sharks are circling them, and the very generic danger music plays. Again, I really wish they had more music for this game. And so they're like, oh my god, the sharks, what happens? But it turns out, nothing. Nothing actually happens. The sharks aren't here to hurt them or kill them because the sharks aren't hungry. And they have this whole philosophical discussion about the nature of people and man, and, and how uh, so many men have gotten to the point of greed or avarice. In other words, eating when you're not hungry, to, to really bear it down to one of the most basic, fundamentally understandable concepts in human existence. This is one of the reasons I like to use food as analogies when it comes to my show, and in real life for that matter, because food is a near-universal constant. Almost anyone in the entire world could understand a food analogy. And that's what they do here with this scene. Most of the people who are consumed by greed or evil or whatever eat when they aren't hungry. So then uh, Will passes out... And then you end up in the town, it's like, uh, that's kind of strange. I do want to share a quote here. Uh, This quote actually shows up in in the uh, following town. And it's a quote that I've remembered, paraphrased of course, ever since I first uh, saw this game. It's a great quote, forgive me. Uh, I'm going to try, I wrote it down here. It's awful when someone loses their life. What took years to put together is destroyed in just one moment. I like that quote. It's it's rather applicable in several situations, and it just kind of speaks to the simplicity of the matter. She says it in relation to the many wars and conquests that her king has been doing, eating when he's not hungry. So then we go to, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Frisia is how I've always pronounced it in my head. It's It's one of the next major towns. And it's this big, burgeoning city. It's probably the most urban area we see in the entire game. You know, tons of people. Tons. There's actually quite a bit of stuff to do. In fact, you can be really evil in this town if you want to get all the red gems. You need to literally sell out one of the slaves. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Um, but of course, I've already given away the big point, and that's the fact that this place is a dump. It's, it's actually funny, because they go out of the way to make it look nice and shiny and pretty... You know, it's got the little leaves going, and the, and the, like, the intro area when you first pop in is nice, and, and basically looks like a nice... God, I, I'm trying to think of a better word here. An idealistic, uh, pseudo-utopian area, okay? But then when you further go in, you see the trash littering the streets, you see the shady-looking characters, you see the people who are just roaming around, or criminals. And, of course, and this is the big one, slaves... There is an absolutely huge slave trade going through here, and people are being kidnapped against their will and sold into slavery. And it's treated exactly as horrible as it is. And again, I like that. I like the fact that they didn't shy away from that, that they just showed this horrible thing and how horrible it really is. And, of course, this also kind of ties into Neil's story a little bit. We don't really find out about Neil more until later, but... Neil is actually one of the heirs of the Rolick Corporation. And the Rolick Corporation is, is this big, massive, wealthy enterprise of doom. The most wealthy corporation on the planet. And Neil uh, is this pseudo-brilliant engineer. I'll talk about that in just a second. But the Rolick Corporation, it is implied, although not outright stated, ba- excuse me, basically got started on the backs of the slave trade. And it's also kind of interesting to me that when Neil finds out about this, or I should say when Neil starts talking about this and we find out about Neil, he is not too pleased about that concept. And he mentions how he wants to try and, you know, make the Rolex corporation into something less horrifically evil. Of course, he never gets the chance to do that. I talked about Neil. So one of the things that's interesting about Neil is he's this brilliant engineer scientist guy. I mean, he invents a freaking plane in an era in which we have kings and queens and castles, and like fishing villages, and sailing boats. So having a plane is pretty impressive. thing is, it doesn't work quite right. And if you look at the game, all of Neil's inventions don't work quite right. I think that's also part of the overall undercurrent theme that I've been referring to several times here. The idea that Neil, under other circumstances, would be this brilliant inventor, but he just can't seem to make it work. There's just something off. There's just something missing there that just isn't working out. So, then we go through the Diamond Mines. Fun place. I don't have much to say about that except the fact that the Diamond Mines, which are diamond mines, which are horrible places regardless of slavery, also happen to include a whole bunch of slaves, and is actively policed by monsters. And I mention this because this is one of the only times where the dungeon actually serves a story element. And the idea that this horrible place where these people are forced to work as, as effectively chattel and probably die. And there's actually, you know, taskmaster, slave master monsters that you can fight alongside other just horrible monsters in the, tr- in the mine. And the impression is given without ever saying it that these people are tossed into this horrifically dangerous environment while being treated like chattel. And being forced to die en masse just to get those diamonds out of there. Again, kind of just smacking that in the face there as far as that topic goes. So uh, then through a series of circumstances we end up in the Sky Garden. Now I want to mention this because this is one of those w- weird things that's pure speculation but I wanted to comment on it. Uh, Viper is this pseudo half bird half humanoid thing. And Viper is one of the few beneficial bosses, the other ones being the vampires, uh, when we finally get to the tower at the end. And I've always had this theory that Viper is indicative of either like a proto-human or what humans could have become, one direction or the other. I I tend to think proto-human... because original in the, in the original test version of this game that came out before this game was properly finished and localized, it wasn't actually a pseudo-humanoid bird thing at all. It was actually just a bird, and it was then changed into this. And again, m- the two bosses that are pseudo-humanoid are the two bosses that... Well, I should say three, but you know, are the ones that actually help us out when we get to the end of the game. Viper being like, I'm I'm willing to try and get you up so we can end this cycle of doom. The other bosses, of course, being the vampires! Uh, Sylvina and... God, I can't remember his name. But the the vampire couple who capture Eric to to set bombs to him. I don't have much to say about Eric. He's basically just there to try and add some levity to what would otherwise be a very dark and very uh, morose game. So we... we, I gotta admit, by the way, vampire boss, that's the hardest boss in the game for me, personally. You gotta fight both of them. They move around a lot. And you're on a timer. And if you fail, you just die. It's the end. But again, the vampire bosses help you out at the end. In fact, they flat out state their souls are still trapped here. And I'll talk more about that when we get to the tower proper. Uh, and so they are hopeful that we can succeed so they can be released and finally pass on. Uh, so I actually kind of, excuse me, I kind of skipped over something here. Uh, let's also talk, so there's the Moo area, you know, which they don't explain at all. I have no idea what's going on with that. And then there's Seth's return. Now I know in the English translation it says that he was eaten and then like became or whatever the, the Leviathan. and I know in the original Japanese translation the idea was that he became a Leviathan directly. I have no idea where they were going with that or why that's a thing. Maybe it's just a freak mutation. I guess the comet is in orbit now so that, that kind of thing could happen. It's just probably the weirdest thing in the overall game. and It's the one thing that just makes me go every time I see it. So he he comes back and he communicates to them through most code by slamming his Leviathan body into the cave. How did he know they were there? It's another question. Anyways, anyways. He comes back, blah, blah, blah. Um, then there's actually one little scene, and I know you're going to make fun of me for this, but there's this nice little scene. Uh, Lance and Lily, I haven't talked about them much this whole game, But I kind of like what they did with this. Lance is just a guy. He also lost his father in the expedition to the Tower of Babel. And Lily is one of the uh, Istri tribe who naturally has the ability to turn into a little flower seed thing. I don't know why she has that ability, but she does. And she's the one who helps us escape from the prison earlier in the game. So she's actually been with us pretty much since the beginning. But what I find interesting about that is it seems just like an off-the-wall ability that comes out of nowhere, but it's useful in quite a few puzzles throughout the course of the game, and in in several story sections as well. But its best usage, in my opinion, is right towards the end, where I think we're in the Wall of China at this point. I'm trying to remember because so many of these dungeons just blur for me. Uh, Where She's talking with Lance, and and the two have been growing closer the whole game. They've had some pretty you know, decent amount of interactions for how little dialogue they have overall. And Lance pretty much flat out admits that he has fallen in love with her. Now, I'm not one for romance in my games. I think I've made that clear many, many times. But what I like about it is, in response to this, she immediately turns into the seed thing, and he's like, "Oh God." <laughs> And something about that just struck me as so appropriate. Because the reason she does this, and she states this flat out, is that she doesn't want him to see her face right now because she's crying. And so she transforms, and several times previously in the game, she would transform and fly away to get away from him. So this is her finally just... I'm not going to leave this time. I just I don't want you to see my face right now. And then she transforms back. And it was just a nice little scene. So... Uh, Quick little thing you're probably noticing a trend here when we get to Watermia, there's the gentleman i can 't remember his name I just played this game who is plays the Russian glass game uh, for those of you know it's basically like Russian roulette. The idea is one of these glasses is poisoned, you know drink, 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 and whoever drinks the poison glass you know dies, and the other person gets all the money now. They never really explain this correctly, but the implication, the intent here is that there's this guy who's the reigning champion at this. And you happen to be a psychic, so you can kind of... or Not just a psychic, I shouldn't say it that way. You have mental powers, just like a huge aggregate of mental powers. So you know which one is poisoned. Uh, so you can obviously win this game. And the guy's like, no, I, I kind of want to lose his intention is that he has somehow arranged the gambling on this so that he has a large amount of money that will go to his family when he dies. And that way they will be taken care of because he already has a terminal disease, so this is cool for him, right? Now what I like about this is this is the kind of thing that is very uh, interesting and very well presented overall. It's one of the better scenes in the game, I'd say. Especially since when he finally does die, no one's happy. I kind of like that in its its own horrible way. He felt convinced that this is the only possible way he could do this. And yet, when he does, his family can't stand his loss. They knew they didn't have him forever anyways. He already had a terminal disease. But the money is not something they wanted. They wanted him. And when you encounter his soul later at the Tower of Babel, he admits that being dead and stuck there is worse than living with the terminal illness. So, then we get to, ah, the village. Ah, the cannibals. Now, this scene was completely changed in the English translation. This is the biggest change, bar none, in the game from the English to the original Japanese. In the original English, it's just like there's these tribes of people, and and Hamlet kills herself to, to give them food. And it's a big scene. It's well done. But it's a little more poignant in the original intent, because, as I think I've already mentioned, it was a village of cannibals. But... It's presented brilliantly. Again, this is, this is some of that complex storytelling and that hitting issues very difficult because these are not people who are cannibals by choice. These are people who are starving in a dying and dead land, who have no food, and who other people have basically willingly sacrificed themselves in order to be food for their surviving members. It's one of the reasons why most of the people left in the village are implied to be very young because the elders let themselves die so their children or grandchildren can live on. In other words, they do not wish to be cannibals. They simply are presented as having no other choice. Which is kind of a twist, again, isn't it? You kind of see this theme repeating throughout this game. So Hamlet then kills herself, and jumps. she's a pig, uh, jumps on the fire. For those of you not aware, I'm not talking about a person. Hamlet's a pig. Uh, Hamlet jumps on the fire, in order to kill herself and roast herself alive so that they will have food to eat. Not just so they won't eat the party, which was the immediate threat, but so they would at least temporarily not have to eat each other as well. Once again, we're seeing this repetition of things being just off. Just not quite right overall. This is a good time to mention that this was the exact moment where I thought, this is a Dark Souls game in its own right. Hear me out. Most people, when they make that phrase, they're referring to difficulty. I think I've made my opinion on that matter clear. I'm not going to rehash it. Um, When I think of a Dark Souls-type game, I think of a world that's wrong, that's a corpse, uh, a a lurching, diseased, rotting beast that is barely struggling to carry itself forward and probably shouldn't because it's, it's wrong. It is literally an aberration. And that's what we're seeing throughout the course of this game. At every level, at every layer, with the exception of Will and Kara, everyone is just a little bit off. Everything's just a little bit wrong. And we've got this horribly unpleasant, rotted, diseased, corpulent corpse of a planet. And Gaia herself flat out admits, "This, this is horrible. I am suffering. The game posits the idea that Gaia, as in the overall planet, exists as a cohesive entity. One singular sentient sapient being, which has many sentient sapient beings living on top of it. Ergo, even the planet is having this same wrongness applied to her. I'll talk more about that in a minute, too. So then... Wow, I'm almost done. This is kind of a short game, forgive me. Whoops. Uh, So then, one of the next things that happens is we get to the pyramids and we kill the jackal. This is another scene that a lot of people, at least back in the day, talked about. I heard this talked about at school. I heard this talked about uh, all over the place, in magazines at the time and in message boards. The jackal, you, you activate a trap, which they actually mentioned earlier if you're paying attention, and the jackal burns alive right in front of you. And this is a SNES game. So it's not exactly super graphic, but it is surprisingly graphic for a SNES game. He is lit on fire, and he tumbles forward, and he starts. And you can see his eyes, and he starts trying to drag himself lurchingly forward towards Carl. Burn, burn, burn! It's just this mess, and Kara rushes up and is just like, "Okay," and she wigs the hell out. And again, they treat her like she's actually a child in a good way. They treat her as someone who just watched someone burn to death in front of them. It doesn't matter that he was an enemy. It doesn't matter that he was an evil, terrible person. Who who was talked about many times throughout the game as being this evil, terrible person. What matters is that she, a young girl, who's like 14 or 15 or whatever, just watched someone burn to death in front of her. And it's messed. And I like that. I like how they uh, address that. So then we go through a few more things and we get to the tower. The Tower of Babel. Now, I mentioned I talk about this. So it's not stated outright. It's made a little bit more clear in the Japanese version, but it's still kind of implied, not stated outright, that thanks to the world's wrongness, which I already talked about, the souls of people who die in this planet don't move on, whether that means to heaven or to the life stream or whatever they adhere to. It doesn't matter because they're stuck. They're stuck here. They're stuck in the Tower. We get to interact with several of them, uh, including our own father. And as I mentioned before, uh, we get to interact with... Uh, uh, oh, God, I forgot their names. I was just talking about them. Uh, we get to interact with the guy from uh, termia, I can't remember his name. I thought I wrote down his name. And we also interact with uh, Seth is there. And, of course, the vampires, as I mentioned earlier. And they all talk about how this is they're just kind of stuck here. And again, it adds to that corpulent, rotting idea. And this is where we find out what's going on with the Comet and Dark Gaia. Now, we know Comet's some super mega weapon crafted by some ancient race. And the way they describe it is kind of flowery in description. In more layman's terms, it severely and negatively mutates whatever it comes into contact with, anything nearby. And so the idea is that the people on this world are literally not really human. The monsters are not really animals, and Gaia is not really Gaia. And thus, we get the whole implication of what's going on here. Now, the best part is that, (laughs) for the most part, this seems to be just an accident. It's kind of a unhappy side effect. The only exception to that is the fact that Dark Gaia has apparently taken a vested interest in this continuing to be. Now, they don't really talk about Dark Gaia a particularly large amount, so we we have a pretty blank sheet to discuss what the hell Dark Gaia is. I have heard the theory posited that Gaia is life, and therefore Dark Gaia is death, but I don't actually agree with that. I think it would be more accurate to say that Gaia is growth and Dark Gaia is rot. Especially given the overall theme and presentation of the game. The idea that Gaia wants people to learn and grow and move forward. And sometimes that's hard. And sometimes that's difficult. And sometimes that's painful. And sometimes you fail. But Dark Gaia being the one who, has by all intents, basically forced the comet to keep coming back to this planet, to Earth. I'll get to that in a second as well. And to to keep influencing the planet in this way. Remember, it's not wiping out all life on the planet. People are still breathing, but they're not really alive, are they? And we see this in the rampant avarice and greed of the king and the wars he fights, and the queen and her manipulations of those under her like they're nothing more than The puppets and the soldiers who are who are bound with their duty and have and and have grown into cold-hearted slaves, basically, and the slaves themselves, uh, or rather, the slave trade that's that's perpetuating the the rampant growth of an industrial military complex that's being supported by the king and just all of this stuff. Everything I've been talking about for the last however many minutes it's been is all a symptom. Excuse me, is all symptomatic of this rot. And that's what I think Dark Guy is really about. And so when we go to stop the comet and we get sent up there, uh, it is Dark Guy who gets involved and says, Whoa, I'm not letting that happen. I want to make sure that this keeps rotting. Then we get to the ending. Now, let me go ahead and admit something that I don't like the ending. I didn't like the ending then, and I actually like it a little bit less now. It's not actually a bad ending. It, it you know. I guess, I guess, th- th- this is where my bias comes in, and I have to admit this honestly. I just don't like the it was Earth all along type of story. By the way, this this occurs on Earth, as in real-life Earth. And I've, I swear, I've seen that so many times. There's so many examples of games and anime and books and movie and shows where, you know, fantasy-type thing or sci-fi-type thing, and, oh, it was actually Earth, or it was supposed to be Earth, or it's going to become Earth. I'm not actually going to name examples because I don't want to spoil anything for you guys. <laughs> other than Planet of the Apes, of course. But no, I, I don't want to spoil any other games or whatnot. But there are several other games, that I'm sure some of you can come up with one as well, where they have the similar plot twist. Now, now that I've got all that out there, I want to admit this is probably one of the better examples of It Was Earth All Along that I've seen personally. Because the whole it, it fits perfectly and seamlessly with the main theme of the work. The idea that this is Earth poisoned this is the rotting corpulent decadent wrong earth where everything's just off a little bit right and so this is the world we have it also kind of helps explain why we have things like the wall of china and anchor Wat and all that here because this is the exact path that earth would have taken if it had been poisoned from the very beginning when we remove that poison because of uh, Earth is retroactively healed, and thus Earth follows the type of progression uh, societal, technological, personal, uh, natural progression that it was supposed to. In other words, that it was meant to undertake the natural progression into real life Earth. Even then, Gaia mentions that she's sad because, you know, no one knows about her, no one mentions her, but. At the very least, it is presented as a much better outcome than the corpse that was heaving forward previously. I really like this game. Thank you guys for giving me a chance to go back through it. Hope you enjoyed my meandering discussions about it. I'll see you guys next time.